page 418 in your pew Bible. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Psalm 11, David says, In the Lord I put my trust. How say ye to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain. For lo, the wicked bend their bow, they make ready their arrow upon a string, that they might privily shoot at the upright in heart. The foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, the eyelid, His eyes behold, His eyelids try the children of men. The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked and him that loveth violence, his soul hateth. Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire and brimstone and a horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup. For the righteous Lord loveth righteousness. His countenance doth behold the upright. Title of the message tonight is, In the Lord I Put My Trust. Let's pray. Father, we love you tonight. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Father, we pray tonight that our hearts and minds would be centered here upon this time, that your word would, Lord, it would be living and active as your Holy Spirit comes and causes it to speak into our hearts, to give us the strength and the courage we need to live for you in a world that is dark and seems to be getting darker. Father, much around us could cause us to fear. Much around us could cause us to, to panic and maybe want to run away. But Lord, if we would trust in you, we could stand and do your will, no matter what the circumstances of life or what's going on around us. So tonight, let your word and your spirit fill up the broken spots in our heart to, to make us complete for the good works you have for us to do in this community and in this world. Father, bless Caitlin and Domingo as they plan their wedding and as they prepare for their new life, fill them with your spirit, give them a strong and a healthy marriage, one that is built on Christ and bonded with their love for one another. Fill me tonight with your spirit, give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech to speak your words and your ways for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Now the historical background of Psalm 11 is pretty much unknown. All we know about what was going on in David's life is what we see in this psalm. Now, from what we can tell, things are not going well. Once again, David is in a spot where there are problems in his life. Now, a neat focus, emphasis in this psalm is that there seem to be two voices speaking to David or speaking in this psalm. One is the voice of David. One is the voice of someone giving David advice. So someone is giving David advice and David's response is how he's going to respond to that advice. Now, David's advice is apparently to flee, right? To run away to the mountain, to be afraid and to leave. The advice David was given is, is, is what is easy and is what is comfortable. Probably even what David may have wanted to do given the amount of trouble he was facing. And yet, David chose to do something else. Rather than flee to the mountain because the wicked were against him, David chose to stand because he put his trust in the Lord. In this moment where David could have taken the advice 
of his counselors. Fled and hid, he chose to stand and stay simply because he trusted in the Lord. When trials or hardships or opposition come into our life, we we too face a choice like David did. A choice to take the easy route. A choice to, to flee and do what's easiest and most convenient and is less painful for us. Or the choice to stand and keep doing what God would have us to do. Really, if you think about it, given the way David responds, it is a choice between choosing fear or choosing faith. It is a choice between listening to human counsel or heeding God's word. In verse 1, David's choice to trust in the Lord. This, I believe, is the overall theme for the entire psalm. Everything David responds, how he responds to this advice to flee, is based upon the fact David trusts in the Lord. His trust is standing in contrast to the advice he's given from his counselors who are telling him to flee and take the easy way out. David refuses. David chooses to stand because he trusts in the Lord. This is a choice he makes to do. This is where our main idea comes from because this is our example to follow. We must choose to trust God even in the difficult times. It's easy enough to trust God in the good times. But in the difficult times when things are scary, things are out of our control... It's more difficult to trust. And yet this is where the test of faith really comes in. It's in those difficult times. Is God good when life is hard? Is he as good when life is hard as he is when life is easy? Now, if you think about the implications of their advice to flee to the mountain. If this advice was given while David is king. This advice is telling him to abdicate the throne. And to run and hide from all of the difficulties and challenges which come with ruling a kingdom. If this advice was given to him in the time when he was fleeing from Saul and hadn't been chased by Saul, then this is a a, a counsel to abandon his rightful position as the, the heir to the throne, God's chosen king. If he did this, maybe Saul would leave him alone. If he fled as king, his difficulties would go away. But neither of those were what God wanted David to do. David was king. He was God's chosen king. He would be king. He would stay king if he trusted in the Lord and if he did God's will. Now those who are timid, those who are fearful, those who often maybe have a a weak faith, usually see cutting and running as the, the easy mindset. They see this as the best option when problems arise. David's statement in verse 1 is the response to people with that mindset. David would not even consider it. How can you say, I trust in the Lord? How can you say, I'm supposed to flee? As far as David was concerned, fleeing in this time of trouble would have been a statement that he did not believe God. He did not trust God. But David did trust God. And so he would remain. He would be steadfast. He would be faithful unto the end. Now, from what we see in verse 2, the opposition is pretty severe. 
The picture being painted for lo, the wicked bend their bows, they make ready their arrow upon a string, that they may shoot privily at the upright in heart. The picture is, is more or less of an assassin in hiding. And so they, they are hiding in a dark spot, a secret spot where nobody sees. They, they've already got their arrow strung. And all they need is for their target to walk by and they're going to pull back and let go and shoot them. So David doesn't really even know where the enemy is, to, per se. They are somewhere. They're out there. They're looking. Every step could lead to the one where the assassin is lying in wait. David's advisors believe the best defense is to run and hide from the offense. In verse 3, they pile on the fear to make panic. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Maybe the wicked who are opposing David are more than just assassins in wait. Maybe it's leaders in the kingdom. Maybe it's people with power and influence. Maybe it's people who will be able to influence judges. People who will be able to, to overturn law. Who will be able to, to oppose the morality. People who, by their wickedness, will essentially upturn and destroy the very foundations the Jewish society is built on. And they're trying to convince David the foundations of a society are crumbling. And when they collapse, there'll be no hope for righteousness. There'll be no hope for David. There'll be no judges for him to plead his cause to. And if there are judges, they won't be righteous judges, so there'll be no help there. There'll not even be a standard of right and wrong. So again, David, flee, run away, get out before it's too late. If you wait until the foundations are destroyed, David, what will you do then? And this last statement is an, an alarmist and a defeatist attitude. And this, this attitude is very common in our world today. We see it on the news daily, minute by minute. Political pundits on both the liberal and the conservative side are constantly piling on this attitude right here. They're continually bombarding us, telling us the other side, if they, then the foundations will be destroyed. What will we do? Conservatives and liberals both are piling this on almost every moment of every day. For obvious reasons, this picture should be very fresh upon our minds in the moment in which we live. Unfortunately, we also see the same sort of fear in the church. Uh, probably as much and, and sadly maybe even more than what we see in the world. How many social media posts... And articles have been written by Christians, pastors, about how masks or COVID and the vaccine was the mark of the beast. How often are we told the, the next piece of legislation, it will destroy the church of Jesus Christ? How often are we told this is it? This is the end. When this happens, it's over for the church. 
And all of this is nothing more than political and theological chicken littling. It is people running around screaming, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. And the goal is to get us to overreact to the issue at hand. And the overreaction is the reaction they're trying to get out of us. David's advisors wanted to file pile this fear upon him to make him panic so he would overreact and flee. That's what they wanted. They wanted him gone. That was what they were pushing for. Those who do this in the media do it for a reason. They want us to panic and respond in the way they've predetermined we should respond. And sadly, those within the church who are doing it are doing the exact same thing. They want us to panic. They want it to well up within us. And they want us to respond in a way they have predetermined. We must respond to this particular issue. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. It's a good idea to know what's going on in the political world. God tells God's word tells us to be wise, to be watchful. And to be aware of the times in which we are living. The problem is the panic this causes. Wells up within us. And it causes us to move out of a place of trusting God and doing his will. To responding in the way humans want us to respond. And not in the way God wants us to respond. What we see from David he is not going to succumb to the panic of the fearful, the timid, and those who are trying to instill panic in him. Rather than panicking, David is going to trust God. He will choose to trust God. This is the example for us to follow. We want to be faithful. And so we want to trust God even in the hard times. In this psalm, it gives us three, I guess, aspects of God to trust in difficult times. First, we trust God's sovereignty. Verse three has often been used even by Christians and emails and sermons to support this Desperate, near panic line of thought. They'll send out something in the latest news that seems to be really, really bad. And they'll end it with, and if the foundations are destroyed, what will the righteous do? Oh gosh, what will the righteous do? What if this passes? What if that happens? What if they're elected? What are we going to do then? Well, people who use this verse twist it out of context. They take it and remove it from the psalm. They're like Satan in his temptation of Jesus when he quoted Scripture, but it didn't mean what he said it meant. Because verse 3 is in a context of a psalm, and the very next verse gives us the answers as to what the righteous will do. What will the righteous do if the foundations are destroyed? We'll look to God, who is still in His temple. He's still on His throne. His eyes still behold. In His eyes still try the children of men. 
That's what we will do. We won't panic. We won't flee. We won't look at this and say, oh no, it's over. We'll look to God. And we will know our God still reigns. The view of David's advisors was earthbound and limited. But David looked to something bigger. David looked to something truer. David looked to God. His God was sovereign. The sovereignty of God is described in three ways in this verse. First, God is on his throne. The throne depicts dominion and authority. David is saying God is still the king over kings and the Lord over lords. There is no power and there is no ruler who can overrule his decree. They are all created and he is eternal. You know, when we looked at Psalm 2 early on, we saw the nations of the world gathered to oppose God and his anointed Christ. They wanted to throw off the bonds and God would not rule over them and he would not set his anointed king on the throne. And as God looked down at the nations raging and the rulers plotting, does anyone remember what God did? He laughed at them. He laughed at the futility of created beings plotting against Him. It would be like ants plotting against us. Except ants would have a better chance against us than we do against God. God holds them in derision. There is like nothing. God doesn't fear. God doesn't fret. And in the end, God sets His anointed King upon the throne and warns the people, kiss the Son before it's too late. That's what God does today. Are the nations of this world and the rulers thereof in opposition against God? Probably When we get deeper into Revelation, we're going to find all the nations of the world oppose God and His Christ and their church. And God does not lose. Jesus does not get strained. So are all the nations against Him? Probably. Is He surprised? No. Is He worried? No. Is he threatened? Not even a little bit. So we look to the fact our God is still on his throne. He still rules and he still reigns. Secondly, David says, God's eyes behold. God's eyes behold. God sees all and God knows all. Nothing ever happens without God being aware of. Of it. Several places in God's Word tell us this, that this is a good one for tonight. My help cometh from the Lord, which made heaven and earth. He will not suffer thy foot to be moved. He that keepeth thee will not slumber. Behold, he that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. I love Psalm 121. I'm excited to preach from it when we get there in about 111 weeks. But notice what we're told here. Our help, our help isn't here at all, is it? Look to the hills, is what the earlier says in the the psalm. The hills where 
typically where the normal help would come from. Natural people, lost people, well, they look here for help. But we don't. We, we look to the Lord. Our help comes from the Lord. Who made heaven and earth? The, the earth and all its fullness belongs to the Lord. And, and, and this God that our, is our help. He doesn't suffer our foot to be moved. He keeps us. But notice, He never sleeps. And He never slumbers. And He never misses anything that's going on. Basically, God is never off duty when it comes to keeping an eye on what's going on in his world. When the circumstances catch us off guard, we have to remember they didn't catch God off guard. We're coming upon a, on a year of 14 days to flatten the curve. Do you know, that didn't surprise God. In fact, it took more than 14 days to flatten the curve. Didn't surprise God. Where we are today with what's going on does not surprise God. He doesn't see these things come up and go, whoa, how did that happen? There may be times from our perspective it sees God is unaware of what's going on. But the reality, even in those times, God sees, God knows his eyelids, he sees. Then God's eyelids test. And this is kind of neat. God doesn't just see actions. God also sees thoughts. He also sees Motives. God knows all things about what is going on in the world. Psalm 139 gives us a clear picture of this. O Lord, Thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my downsitting and my uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. God knows everything we do, including our thoughts. The idea of God knowing our thoughts afar off means our distance from God doesn't hinder Him. He doesn't need to be physically standing in front of us to know what we think. He knows what we think. He knows the thoughts we think and then act on. And He knows the thoughts we think and don't act on. He knows the thoughts we think about the person who is in front of us at the Walmart Supercenter. We know, God knows the thoughts we think about someone that we don't tell. He knows everything about everything. Whether we speak it or act on it, it is fully known to God. Not only does God know our thoughts, God knows our motivations. God knows why we do what we do. We can hide our motives from one another, but we can't hide them from God. God would know why we shared a particular story about a particular person at a particular time. God knows why we went down one aisle instead of another aisle. God knows if our motives are righteous and God knows if our motives are unrighteous. Now, all of this is what's meant in his eyelids, try the children of men. Now, for David in his facing opposition, what this means is God not only knows about the overt attacks he's going to have to deal with, but he knows about the covert attacks he's going to have to deal with. God knows the motivation behind those who are giving David the counsel to flee. God knows the motivation behind the people who are trying to walk David down a particular place so the assassin can shoot his arrow. God knows all about what is going on in David's life. And, and this is meant to encourage us as we go through difficult circumstances. God not only knows what we are thinking, God knows what they are thinking. God not only knows what our motives are, God knows what their motives are. You know, you and I, we can speculate on what another person is thinking. But it's just that. 
It's just speculation. But God knows. You and I, we can speculate as to what someone's motives were, why they did what they did. But God, God knows. This is why David can say confidently, I trust in the Lord, I will not flee. This is sufficient ground for confidence. And it is the proper answer to those who would fill us with fear and encourage us to cut our losses and quit, to respond in panic in the way they would have us to respond. Our conflict is not hidden from our great God. Our hardship has not gone unnoticed by our great God. Our circumstances, while certainly beyond our control, are not beyond His. And it's not just our circumstances. What's going on in the world around us is far beyond our ability to do anything about. But it's not beyond God's. He is still completely sovereign. Knowing God is in control and aware of our circumstances, whether they be good or whether they be bad, should give us the confidence to stand and say, I will not flee. I will not respond to your panic in the way you're trying to make me respond. I will stand. I will do God's will because I put my trust in the Lord. And this is what it means for us to choose to trust God. Even in the difficult times, we trust our God is sovereign. Secondly, we trust God's purposes. The first part of verse 5, the Lord trieth the righteous. God trieth the righteous. The word for trieth used outside of a religious context usually referred to the testing of metal to see its quality. It's a way to test the metal to see if it was pure, to see what it was made of. When it's used in connection with God and his people, as it is here, it refers to the testing of a person to determine essential qualities such as integrity, faith, devotion, trust. But this isn't God testing us to see what we're made of as though he doesn't know. This is God testing us to reveal what we're made of. To reveal what is in us. And as what he reveals the good that is in us, he also gets rid of the bad that was in us. That's what God does when he tries us. He tries us. He tests us. And as he does, the good that he has placed in us rises to the top. And the junk goes over to the side and he scoops it up. And he tosses it aside. So we can be more pure and more of what He would have us to be. This idea is seen all throughout Scripture. One of my very favorite verses in Malachi. Malachi 3.3, God sets as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He shall purify the sons of Levi, purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Now as I understand it, gold and silver is, is purified in a particular way. It is heated until the metal melts. And as it does, the, the impurities rise to the top. And the person who's, who's purifying it, he has a, a big spoon and he scoops out the junk and he throws it away. And then when all of that's gone, he heats it up some more and he scoops out what's come. And from what I can tell, from what I've learned, the way he knows that the, the gold or the silver is pure is that it takes on a mirror-like quality. And when he looks into the pot, 
He can see himself. This is what God does with us. He sends or he allows heat to come into our lives so the junk would rise up. And he scoops it out and he throws it away. And he heats it up some more and he scoops it out. And he throws it away and he keeps doing this till when he looks at us, we have a mirror-like quality. We look like him. Specifically, we are much like Christ, which is the ultimate goal, all of God's work in our lives. That we would be increasingly more and more like Jesus. This is another reason David can put his trust in the Lord and will not flee to the mountains. He knows, despite how bad this is, God will work through it and God will bring some good out of these negative circumstances. Now, let me say one thing before we move on. God being able to bring good out of every circumstance is not synonymous with every circumstance is good. I've often heard it said everything that comes into our life is good and we should rejoice in it. Well, the Bible doesn't actually say that. What the Bible says is God can bring good out of every circumstance. Some things that come into our life, they're bad. I mean, they're all bad and they're no good at all. The sudden death of a loved one, a surprising terminal diagnosis. Or some sort of personal or national tragedy. We can't look at those things and say, oh, this is good. Hallelujah. That's not faith. That's not trusting in the Lord. That's not what it means. Instead, trusting God's purposes and his ability to bring good out of every circumstance is trusting. God's goodness is better than the world's badness. It's trusting God's sovereignty is so much That in the worst of circumstances, God can somehow turn that loss into a win. God is greater than our circumstances. He is so good and he is so great. He can take truly bad things and bring good things from them. And so we can trust. We can trust God. In difficult times, we can trust his purposes for our lives. And then finally, we trust God's righteousness. Last of verse five, the Lord trieth the righteous to bring good, but oh, it's about to shift the wicked and him that loveth violence. His God's soul hateth. Upon the wicked, he shall rain snares, fire, and brimstone, and a horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup. The testing of the righteous is contrasted what will eventually happen to the unrighteous. Eventually, God's judgment will fall on the unrighteous. Now, a major part of the idea here is through their wickedness, through their love of violence, they have made themselves the enemies of God. 
And in making themselves the enemies of God, they have earned the wages of sin. Now, this idea is taught all throughout the Old and the New Testament. The New Testament tells us those who that people make themselves the enemies of God by their wicked thoughts and their evil actions and the, the judgment of God will fall upon them. The result of their opposition to God, the result of their wickedness and rejecting God is a certain judgment which will fall upon them. The, the picture of God raining down fire and brimstone upon them is very similar to what it talks about in Genesis 19, what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. And that sort of picture of fire and brimstone raining down really is probably an Old Testament allusion to the New Testament truth of the lake of fire, the lake which burns with fire and brimstone. This being the, the portion of their cup, this is their inheritance. This is what they've earned. They're getting what they deserve is essentially what it says. This isn't God being mean. He's a big meaner and he's doing this to people he doesn't like. No, no, that's not the picture. They have loved violence. They have hated righteousness. They have been wicked. They have opposed God. And in doing so, they have earned something for their wickedness and their rebellion and their actions. And what they have earned is the horrible, terrifying judgment of God. It says that they, a horrible tempest in verse 6. Charles Spurgeon says about this. Some expositors think that in the term horrible tempest, there is in the Hebrew an allusion to that burning, suffocating wind which blows across the Arabian deserts and is known by the name of Simun, a burning storm. Loweth calls it, while another great commentator reads it as wrath wind. In either version, the language is full of terrors. What a tempest! Will that be which shall overwhelm the despisers of God? Oh, what a shower that will be which shall pour itself forever upon the heads of impenitent sinners in hell. Repent, you rebels, or this fiery deluge shall soon surround you. Hell's horrors shall be your inheritance, your entailed estate. And the reason God will do this, verse 7. For the Lord is righteous. The Lord is righteous. And the righteous God must punish sin. Many people think, well, God is righteous or God is good. And so God will allow a pass. But we wouldn't consider that with a judge in our day, would we? I read a story, and I've probably told the story before. Several years ago, there was a a girl went to a church camp. And while she was at church camp, one of the churches had brought a man to cook. He was not a good man, and he forcibly sodomized her. And when she reported and it went to court, somehow the, the prosecuting attorney knew the man's family and made a deal. And the deal involved him essentially not, not getting any problems. I mean, he didn't go to jail. He didn't get probation. It was just, don't do that again. Promise, I promise. And he was let off. The judge agreed to this. The judge, knowing what the man had done, agreed to this deal. 
Now let me ask you, was that a righteous judge who let that man off for that crime? Of course not. That judge was not good. He was the opposite. He was an unrighteous judge who let the wicked escape. He was the opposite of good. He was wicked himself. God is righteous. And as the righteous God, He must punish sin. If God excuses sin in any of us or anyone, He is not good. He is not righteous. God will punish sin. This is another reason David can steadfastly trust God. In this difficult time, David knows human justice is flawed and the wicked may escape human justice. But human justice is not the end all be all of what there is. There is something after this life and there is a righteous judge awaiting the wicked and he will hold them accountable for their wickedness, their love of violence, their evil they have done in their lives. And so David chooses to trust God in this difficult time. Knowing God is righteous allows us to choose to trust God even in the difficult times. Now we can trust God in these ways because of what God has done for us in Jesus. Think about it for a second. What Jesus has done for us on the cross has proven God to be worthy of our trust in these ways. We can trust God's sovereignty because in the time of Jesus, the nations raged. The the leaders of the nation plotted against God and his anointed Christ. And though they rebelled and though they tried to thwart God's plans, all they actually did was serve to fulfill it. God proved himself sovereign at the death and the resurrection of Jesus. We can trust God's purposes. For while Jesus suffered horribly on the cross, God's ultimate purpose, our salvation, won out. And now salvation is available to all who will repent of their sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We know from reading the gospel accounts that the death of Jesus appeared to be a loss. How did the disciples feel? What did they do? They felt all was lost. All was gone from a human standpoint. God had failed. But from God's standpoint, he was brought he brought from it the greatest win the world has ever known. We can trust God's righteousness because the cross reveals both God's love for humanity And his hatred for sin. The very first promise of the gospel is in Genesis 3 and 15. When God promised one day the the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head and the serpent would bruise his heel. God kept this promise. Even though it meant Jesus would die horribly on the cross. We can trust the righteousness Of a God who will keep his word even when it comes at such a cost. The cross also guarantees the righteous God will punish sin. 
How evil would God be to punish our sin on the cross through Jesus? And then at the last day to just say, that's okay. You're good enough. Surely a righteous judge would not do that. The righteousness of God guarantees salvation through the cross. And the righteousness of God guarantees damnation for those who reject the cross. If we trust God through Jesus for our salvation, we can trust God through anything, even the bad times. Because in trusting God through Jesus for our salvation, we have trusted God's sovereignty. We have already trusted God's purposes. And we have already trusted in God's righteousness. If our confidence and hope is in what God has done for us in Christ, we can stand firm. As the world goes from bad to worse, we will not give in to the counsel of despair and panic. Because we trust God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. You are worthy of our trust. Father, today help us. Help us to understand if we trust you for our salvation. We can trust you for the rest. Help us to see how in trusting you for our salvation, we are trusting In your sovereignty, we are trusting in your purposes. We are already trusting in your righteousness. So we can easily take that trust for our hope for the future, our hope for eternity, and we can apply it to whatever's going on in our lives or in our world at this time. Our God rules. Our God reigns. Our our God will bring a win out of the worst of circumstances. Our God is good and righteous and will do what is righteous. Father, you know what our futures hold. You know what this year and the future holds. We do not. And whether it be good or whether it be bad, let us be a people who say, I will not flee to the mountains. I will not give in to your panic. I will not let you tell me how I'll respond. I will stand and I will trust in my sovereign Righteous God, who has a plan and a purpose for my life that will not be thwarted. We ask this in the mighty name of Christ our Savior. Amen.